My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Danielle Obrey and Joe McGuire. The overall effort to combat sexual violence tends to incorporate many different strands of work, in recognition of how tragically many ways our institutions, our social relations, and our practices as individuals enable, legitimize, and encourage sexual violence. Some efforts focus on changing how institutions respond after sexual violence has occurred, whether that is healthcare institutions, social services, employers, or police and courts. Other efforts are more grounded in preventing sexual violence, whether that is through challenging how schools and the media are complicit, through addressing broad gendered inequalities that lay much of the groundwork for sexual violence, or through directly challenging the ways in which state institutions are complicit in sexual violence, particularly for indigenous women, black women, sex workers, homeless women, and many differently situated trans people. Still others focus on building grassroots relationships among women and other gender-oppressed people as a way of both fostering healing and of building collective power to work against sexual violence and for gender justice. Another strand of work, however, begins from the recognition that, even though sexual violence can be and is perpetrated by people of all different genders, the vast majority of it is perpetrated by cisgender men. This line of thinking argues that, within the broad spectrum of other ways we need to be challenging sexual violence, the rape culture that enables it, and the gendered inequality that underlies it, we should equip a core of sympathetic men to be able to intervene in everyday ways with their peers. Such men are ideally situated to challenge rape culture and toxic masculinity and to have difficult conversations with other men about gender, sexuality, violence, and justice. And not only that, fostering a pro-feminist understanding of such things can help men recognize and navigate the much more limited but nonetheless still painful ways in which toxic masculinity and patriarchy can be harmful to men as well. Danielle Obrey is the executive director of Calgary Communities Against Sexual Assault, and Joe McGuire is a sexual assault educator and the program facilitator of the Man Enough program. Man Enough is an eight-module course that engages men in challenging conversations about things like masculinity, sexuality, male privilege, male violence, rape culture, and ways that men can take action around these things in our everyday lives. Obrey and McGuire speak with me about the organization, the program, and the importance of engaging men in efforts to challenge sexual violence and rape culture. We spoke by Skype to phone from Calgary. My name is Danielle Obrey. I'm the Chief Executive Officer of Calgary Communities Against Sexual Abuse. And My name is Joseph McGuire, and I'm a sexual assault educator with CASA and one of the facilitators for the Man Enough program. So overall, the agency is the primary sexual abuse and sexual assault agency in Calgary and surrounding areas. And so we provide a continuum of services from crisis intervention to counseling to police and court support to education and different outreach programs. 
the Man Enough program or the Men's Engagement program is the program that Joe was involved with specifically. Mm-hmm. And so the Man Enough program is a part of our Men's Engagement broad program. And what it is, it's an eight-week program to engage male-identified folks in thinking about masculinity and then learning ways in which they can gain some tools and language to be stronger allies against men's violence against women and then gender-based violence more broadly. 2009, I believe, CASA had kind of a youth team and I got wind of that team and the team was being put together to find ways to engage young people on sexual violence and trying to find ways to get more people talking about it and that sort of thing. And so I joined up there and had my worldview changed drastically with finding out about feminism and the epidemic of sexual violence and all that stuff. And for me, there was no going back after learning about it. So continued with the Youth for Change team for a couple of summers and then went into the real world and found myself wanting to be back doing this work again. And just so happened, I realized that as CASA was getting some funding for the men's program, the men's engagement stuff. And so I decided to come back. My journey was, uh, I started quite young as a volunteer at the Calgary Sexual Assault Center and made my way through that kind of work. It's pretty much been my life's work as well, mainly sexual violence. I've worked a little bit in domestic violence as well, but mainly sexual violence and did clinical work did police and court support work. And then, unfortunately, back in 1992, the Calgary Sexual Assault Center had to close. And when the main funders decided to start a new organization, I felt compelled to be a person to throw in a proposal to do that. And that was about 22 years ago. And running the agency over the last 22 years has been very challenging and very exciting. And, you know, I'm very lucky to be able to work in this field. It's actually very powerful and can be very empowering and very positive. At the very beginning, when I created CASA, I really wanted to create an organization that really encouraged communities to be involved because I recognize that one small agency can't make all the change that needs to happen around this issue. So that was my overall vision was really to build a community that supported the issue, that talked about the issue And so for me, it was really important to have a dual mandate in the organization. So there's this clinical mandate, which, of course, deals with the issue after the fact. And then there's the education and outreach piece. So we're equally staffed on both those sides. And throughout the years, we've added lots of programs, but we've always done that in a way that is very strategic and very thoughtful. And we believe strongly in evaluation and making sure that what we're offering to the community is effective. So we grew from 10 people to having about 30 right now, and we have lots of different programs that we offer to the community. Probably back in 2006, about, there was no engagement of men in this issue. I mean, very little. I think that sexual assault centers tried to involve men, you know, on their boards or had some volunteers that were male. But it really was seen as a women's issue and that women were responsible for doing the work around it. And there was a few men in the States that started challenging that paradigm. So I brought a man up from Syracuse, New York, named Don McPherson. He's a former football player, and he studied under Jackson Katz. Jackson is one of the pioneers in this kind of work. I just brought Don, and he started having these conversations. We had a lunch for corporate people, but nothing else was happening. So I feel really proud that CASA was the first organization in Alberta to bring a man in to talk about these issues. So it just really stuck with me. And part of the youth 
program was about trying to engage youth. We had a team of four and two of the members were men and two were women and it worked really well and it really showed that we needed to go in that direction. So we started looking for money to have a full-time program. We had two young men that worked on it, Joe and Joe. Their job was to look at the research and the literature and develop a program that they thought would address the type of service that we needed. And so Man Enough was one of the programs that came out of that. Talk more about why it's important to engage men in the struggle to end sexual violence. I think it's important to engage men because it's not a women's issue. It's a men's issue. When we look at the people who are perpetrating sexual violence, the majority are male-identified individuals. This, of course, doesn't mean that all men are perpetrating sexual violence, but it's hard to ignore when you look at the numbers of reported instances it is men perpetrating this, right? So it's the men's issue and men haven't been involved. And so, so long as we're sitting and having this conversation, we need men to be talking and engaging and, you know, talking with their own peer groups to get at the attitudes and beliefs that are fueling sexual violence and rape culture, because that's a conversation that's being missed. Men have power to influence their own peer groups, and that's something that needs to happen. This conversation wasn't and isn't happening as much as it should be, and so I think that's why it's important to engage men and bring them into the conversation. Walk listeners through an overview of the content of the Man Enough program. There's a couple of things we want to do with the program. The first thing and most important thing, I think, is to equip men with the tools and the language to have an effective conversation about sexual violence with their peers, with their friends, with themselves, really. It's a complicated issue, no doubt. And so we start with some foundational thought building around what masculinity is. And so our first module is called Thinking Outside the Box. What we're referencing there is, can't quite remember who started it with it, but taking the concept of gender boxes, so the man box and the woman box, and then breaking them down as to, okay, what's in the box? What's the stereotypical ways that we think of and describe men? What are the stereotypical ways that we think of and describe women? And then what are the words we have to keep people in those boxes, right? And so in doing this, we set the foundation that when we look at the gender boxes kind of in comparison, we can see that the women box is actually defined in relation to the man box. So all of the negative words that we have to keep men in the man box are feminine and homophobic or heterosexist kind of words, very derogatory, which sets up this subconscious belief that I have to be a man. And if I'm not, if I'm anything other than a man, then I'm going to lose and something bad will happen. And one of the ways to be a man is to not be feminine and to disparage women in a lot of ways. And this is not necessarily going to be overt stuff. It's more the subconscious ways in which we have, you know, bitch, pussy, very derogatory language there that sends the message that it's not a good thing to be a woman and that for a man to be unmasculine is probably one of the worst things. And so in doing that, we set the foundation that there's this hierarchical relationship In module two, we start talking about gender and sexual diversity. Again, just expanding the perceptions of ways that people can be. And then moving towards a conversation around healthy sexuality. And that's not necessarily going to be about condoms and STI prevention, but more about a relationship with sexuality that we all have, whether somebody is asexual or sexual or bisexual or however their sexuality is for them. That's something that is an important part of who somebody is. And we want people to have healthy relationship with that so that they can then better negotiate that with potential partners down the line. Module three is a conversation on male privilege. 
This is something we obviously have to address because people socialized as men have male privilege. And there's a lot they don't have to think about because of that male privilege. Specifically, an example that would be the expectation of sexual violence. We do live in a rape culture where sexual violence is so normalized that we have jokes for it. It's on TV on a regular basis. And men are exempt of feeling the weight of that, at least from a gender perspective. And then that's an important conversation because the next two modules, modules four and five, are men's violence against women. And so in these two modules, we'll break down and look at rape culture, sexual harassment, sexual assault, and a little bit of domestic violence. And then, of course, considering how consent fits into all this or more accurately doesn't fit into all this because of all the ways in which socialization impacts masculinity. Module six is male culture and media, and we'll look at the ways in which the media contributes to uh, unhealthy perceptions of masculinity. Module seven is a discussion on pornography. We realized that this particular topic needed its own module because, quite frankly, we don't talk enough about it in a healthy sort of way. People are scared to even talk about pornography, and so we wanted to open up that door and get people thinking critically about pornography, its consumption, its production, what it means, what it represents, and all of that stuff. And then everything wraps up with Module 8, and we call it What Can We Do? So that's getting guys in a place where they can start putting some of this information to use and thinking about ways they can effectively engage with their peer groups in conversations that don't have to be big conversations, but thinking about ways that they can change an attitude and belief or challenge a joke here or or change the way somebody thinks about that there. And then hopefully what we want to do with the program down the road is build a community of men who are critically thinking about masculinity and critically thinking about gender roles and all the stuff that's related to it so that they don't feel like they're necessarily out there alone, that they can have a group of people to come back to. What's your sense of how men find their way to this program and of who has found their way to it out of the great diversity of men that live in Calgary? We have some really awesome relationships around the community, specifically with the Women's Resource Centre at the University of Calgary. They've been a huge, huge ally for us, a huge, huge point of support. And they actually have a male allies team. And so the first round of Man Enough, we made a lot of connections through that male allies team at the UC who were guys already engaged in this conversation. They're volunteering at the Women's Center. They were thinking about this issue. And our initial conversations with them was really what guided our recruiting process for the next couple rounds of Man Enough. We also have worked in the past at the Pride Center at MRU and then a couple of other agencies within the MRU campus to find men that are engaged in social issues and guys that are already thinking about this stuff, guys that are wanting to learn more, wanting to be more effective. Because for a lot of men, there isn't a lot of places for them to talk about social justice-related issues. Frankly, we don't have a lot of spaces where that kind of real conversation of being personal and saying that something's bothering you doesn't happen, right? And so we wanted to find areas and spaces where men were trying to learn, are learning, and then are already kind of engaged and then recruiting from that pool. And then, of course, we also recruit from our own friend groups. We know the guys that we know who are thinking about this. We've had conversations with our buddies about this kind of stuff before, and so we brought them as well into the group to formalize that education and formalize that discussion and provide a real space to sit down and have a really robust conversation about this stuff. Earlier, you made reference to toxic masculinity. Talk a little bit about what you mean by that term. So toxic masculinity is kind of a tricky concept to 
pinned down because the way that we approach it, any aspect of masculinity can become toxic if it's being applied uncritically. So when I think about the stereotypical trait of masculinity of, say, being stoic, right? This is a, a very common thing. It's a very celebrated trait. A lot of masculine heroes on, on TV portray it and revel in it and that sort of thing. But in doing so, there's not a lot of space for men to be emotional, to be vulnerable, to cry, to love, to be and make real authentic connections with themselves, other men, other women, and that sort of thing. And so it's more so when that stoic trait is applied to men and specifically to boys growing up, that the toxicity starts to develop. So when a boy who's maybe five or six hurts his knee and starts to cry and then runs to dad and dad says, stop crying, or mom says, stop crying, you got to learn to be a man. That's when that stoic trait of something that might be good at some points starts to get sort of twisted in something where that young boy realizes that, okay, so I can't cry. I'm not allowed to cry. So vulnerability is a negative attribute. And anybody who cries is also not masculine or displaying this negative attribute. So I learned that I can't do it. And I also learned that other people who do it are weak. And again, it's a very subconscious thing, but that's where that learning starts to set in, right? And you can apply that sort of process to just about any trait within masculinity. And so what we want to do with our program and with men's engagement more broadly is say, like, look, your masculinity is something that you define for yourself. And so if you are a stoic person, that's okay, but know where that's coming from. Know that that shouldn't be an expectation that we have for all men. All men shouldn't have to be stoic to be respected and appreciated or, or what have you. There should be space for them to be vulnerable and to connect with others and make authentic connections with each other that don't have to involve some sort of performance of masculinity, some sort of perpetual one-upping of each other, of, of manliness, I guess. How does the program incorporate a recognition of differences in experience of masculinity? So, for example, how Black men and Indigenous men and other men of color experience masculinity in a range of quite different ways, both from each other and particularly from how white men experience masculinity. For the male privilege module, we bring in and define Kimberly Crenshaw's intersectionality for that conversation for that reason exactly. Again, Men don't experience oppression based on their gender, but we know that men of color, queer men, all experience different forms of oppression in those areas. And so we want to provide a space where men who aren't white could speak to their experience and talk about what they've faced and what they've had to deal with. Because oftentimes masculinity means different things in different contexts. We do all we can to make sure that we create as a safer space for this conversation and that can lead to some uncomfortable conversations, but at all times, we're trying to cultivate a space that's allowing for that discomfort, but not at the expense of making it an unsafe place, because that's that big distinction between a space that's uncomfortable, is a space where learning can happen, but a space that's unsafe is reinforcing the same tropes and stereotypes and oppressions that we're looking to change. And so we do a lot of work to make sure that the guys feel like they're in a safer space to have tough conversations, to ask tough questions, or to call each other out if need be. 
but we, again, always want to make sure that we're doing that in a way that's pushing things forward and not sitting in a space of anger or frustration. Talk more about the kinds of tools and practices that you hope men get from the program and that they can take back to their everyday lives and use in challenging things like toxic masculinity, gender inequity, and sexual violence. Well, a big thing for me as a facilitator of the program is that I don't believe there's any insignificant acts of activism. And when the guys leave the program, I want them to take that away at the very least. So they don't have to organize a march to be doing activist work, right? A big part of men engaging with feminism and especially sexual violence is first learning and hearing stories and finding your area where you can be most effective. And that's really where we want them to take that information. So we're very deliberate and there's lots of education that that happens over the course of the program, but it's not necessarily going to be effective if they're going to go out and then deliver the program for their friends, right? We want them to learn this information and then adapt it to their own friend groups and think about, okay, how can I let my buddy know who I love and have known for many years that it's not okay to make a rape joke? What's the best way for me to have that conversation? Sometimes that might mean straight up calling them out on it and saying it's not cool. Other times it might be getting inquisitive about it and saying, hey man, why'd you make that joke? Like, let's talk about this. And so making sure that they know that the little stuff, the little things that they can do to get their peer groups to think differently, to change the way they think about the world are all important acts of activism. And so it starts with liking posts on Facebook, sharing things on Twitter, if they see a feminist friend or a friend who experiences some form of systemic oppression, supporting them on Facebook or social media if they're being harassed or challenged or what have you. And then most importantly, not taking over spaces that aren't for them. So encouraging them to be allies with different groups that face systemic oppression, but making sure that they know that it's not about them. And if they want to be effective allies, that the first and most important thing that any man needs to do is to sit in that space and hear the stories, hear the lived experiences of the people who experience that oppression, because that's going to be your best teaching tool in terms of finding ways where you can be most effective moving forward. An important principle that has emerged from social movements in the last few decades is that all political work should be grounded in accountability to those people who are most directly and significantly affected by a particular oppression or marginalization or exclusion or violence. How, in both the program itself and in the practices that you encourage men to take back to their everyday lives, do you foreground the importance of that accountability? For that, I have to go back to Module 3 again with male privilege. One of the things that I do as a facilitator is tell a story of when our, our male privilege was being impacted. Talk about and prepare the guys for when you step into this realm, you're going to hear how people like you have hurt the people that you're trying to help. And that often doesn't feel very good because you're going to start to realize how you've participated and perpetrated violence against people that you probably didn't realize were actually perpetrating against. And so to be prepared for that so that when that moment comes, taking it as a learning opportunity to learn how you can do better. Because we've all grown up in a society that privileges the male experience. And so moving forward, it's about learning how you have participated, how you are still currently participating, 
And then from there, trying to think about a way in which you can either stop or leverage your privilege in a positive way. And part of that leveraging that privilege in a positive way is being accountable for the things that you've said and will say. So if that means that you've, you know, made a mistake and made some assumptions and are having to apologize, doing so authentically, apologizing for your mistake and not defending why you did it. I think that would be that difference in where we want the guys to leave in terms of accountability. What other things are you doing and do you hope to do in terms of engaging men in this work against sexual violence? The Man Enough is one program, but it's not the only one in terms of our bigger education strategy around this, because some people can't commit to that, right? It's a big commitment of eight weeks. So we've had some offshoots of different types of programming that Joe has created that he offers. It's one session here, one session there. The purpose is perhaps to get people initially involved in it, you know, a safe space for them to get the paradigm shift going. So we have started something called a Men and Feminism Discussion Series. And so this is a one-off event where we have different topics that allow people of all genders just to sit down and think and talk about masculinity in a way that doesn't require them to take a big eight-week program Part of our plan is about building some capacity within our organization to do it. But my vision for this is I want to have a full throttle of a communication plan around how to get this messaging out there. I'm really hoping that we can build that and offer more things and learn from different things and learn from what the community is telling us in terms of what they need around this and make it just more normalized for people to, you know, talk about this at a cocktail party or feel safer to explore it. And I think that we're getting to that point around society because what we're seeing and what we've seen over the last year in particular in Canada with some of the high-profile cases is that people are feeling a little more comfortable to talk about sexual violence and what that means. And I also think that people are hungry to learn about the issue and people want to do stuff. And unfortunately, there isn't an easy fix to this problem. It really is about engaging people and prevention perspective, you know, addressing the misogyny that occurs. But I think not everyone, but we have more and more people that are interested in what can I do around this. There is an appetite amongst men to have this conversation. And it's more so the lack of spaces to do it or this notion that men aren't welcome in this kind of conversation. From its earliest waves, feminism has been looking to engage men. And I know from a personal level that feminism changed my life in so many positive ways. And if I'm thinking about moving forward and changing the conversation, I want to make sure that other men know that they're welcome in this conversation as well. You have been listening to my interview with Danielle Obrey and Joe McGuire of Calgary Communities Against Sexual Assault. We've been talking about their Man Enough program, which engages men in the struggle to end sexual violence. To learn more about it, go to calgarycasa.com and search for the Man Enough program. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. 
I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Your footprints, your footprints.